welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, June 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Harris introduces a bill aimed at preventing the spread of HIV, Swalwell releases his gun control plan, a look at parts two and three of Castro's housing plan, and a listener question about buying merchandise from a campaign. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Today, Senator Kamala Harris introduced a bill in the Senate called the PrEP Access and Coverage Act. If passed, the bill would guarantee insurance coverage for the drug PrEP and create funding to ensure the drug also reaches uninsured Americans. So before we proceed, it's possible you haven't heard of PrEP. Well, it's a drug also known as Truvada made by Gilead Sciences. It was originally aimed as an HIV treatment drug as part of a cocktail with a handful of other drugs. But after a long study, it was found to be effective in preventing HIV infection to begin with. The idea behind PrEP is that it acts almost like a vaccine. You take a small amount twice a day, and if you are exposed to HIV, it radically reduces the risk you will become infected. The efficacy is as high as 92%. Okay, so the problem around PrEP has mainly been cost. Right now, it is a commercially produced medication made by one company. Although generic versions are in the works, they're not here yet, and the current cost of Truvada, used as PrEP, is north of $20,000 a year per person in the U.S. And while some insurance companies do cover it, it typically carries a super heavy copay, like many hundreds of dollars a month kind of copay. This is literally a life-saving drug that most people cannot afford to take. Reading from a Politico article by Marianne Levine, quote, Harris's office estimates that just 7% of the 1 million Americans who could benefit from the drug have a prescription. Her plan seeks to make the drug free for people with insurance and make it more readily available. For too many in our country, lack of insurance coverage and exorbitant costs have put PrEP out of reach, and that needs to change, Harris said in a statement. Nearly four decades since the beginning of the HIV-AIDS crisis that took so many lives and caused countless others to live in fear, we can and will stop the spread of this disease. End quote. Okay, so what would Harris's bill do? Well, it's pretty simple. The key thing is that it would require public and private insurance plans to offer PrEP for people who have a prescription, of course, without a copay. They would be free. The bill would also ensure that testing services are also covered, because if you're on PrEP, you typically have to get an HIV test every three months. It would also make it illegal for insurance companies, for instance, life insurance companies, to charge higher premiums for people who take this drug. And beyond that, it would offer grants to states, territories, and tribes to help with drug and testing access for Americans without health insurance. The bill specifies $300 million in grants spread across five years for that. And last up, Harris's bill would require the CDC to help raise awareness of this drug within the LGBTQ community. Let me read from an article by Trudy Ring in The Advocate that lays out how Harris's bill goes beyond the current plan for providing PrEP coverage in the U.S. Quote, The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, an independent panel of medical experts, recommended this month that people who are at a significant risk of acquiring HIV take PrEP. The recommendation means that private insurance companies will have to cover PrEP without cost sharing for those individuals by 2021. 
as under the Affordable Care Act, insurers have to cover preventive services given an A or B rating by the panel. PrEP received an A rating. But Harris's legislation goes further by requiring that all private and public insurance plans cover, without a copay, not only the drug itself, but also all associated doctor's visits, tests, and monitoring currently recommended by the U.S. Public Health Service. End quote. And reading again from a statement by Harris, quote, In particular, people of color and women have underutilized PrEP. In 2015, while approximately 500,000 black individuals and 300,000 Latinx individuals could have potentially benefited from PrEP, only 7,000 black individuals and 7,600 Latinx individuals received prescriptions. End quote. Okay, now this is technically a bill in the Senate, but it is also essentially a policy that Harris is attempting to enact via legislation. So, I ask... What does it cost and how do we pay for it? Well, I actually don't know because at press time, the bill was not online for me to read. I assume it will show up right after I post this, which is always kind of how that goes. Having said that, typically legislation talks about spending money, not how to get that money. So if that bill text does show up and actually gives us more detail on spending and funding sources, I will let you know. But don't hold your breath because usually this stuff just talks about spending. Earlier this week, Representative Eric Swalwell released his comprehensive gun control plan. He calls it a national framework to end gun violence. Now, if you're not familiar with Swalwell, he is essentially a single-issue candidate whose issue is gun violence. In the introduction to Part 5 of his plan, Swalwell writes, quote, Mass shootings are an almost daily occurrence in the United States. Things are so bad that from 2013 to 2019, there was exactly one week in which the United States did not suffer from a mass shooting. End quote. Reading from an analysis of the policy by Zach Hudak at NBC News. Quote, Swatwell's plan calls for those who refuse to give up their assault rifles to be prosecuted unless they keep those guns at hunting lodges or shooting ranges. He also took aim at gun manufacturers, saying the Protection for Lawful Commerce in Guns Act, a federal law that protects gun manufacturers from civil liability, should be repealed. Additionally, he said gun companies should be forced to stop manufacturing assault-style rifles. End quote. The plan includes a buyback program for those assault rifles, plus various new rules for gun and ammunition purchasing and ownership, plus a licensing program for gun owners. It is very, very comprehensive. I'm going to read just some points from a summary by Julio Rosas at the Washington Examiner. Quote, Swatwell's plan also includes a 48-hour cooling-off period between the time a person purchases a firearm and the time they take possession of it, implement background checks for all firearm and ammunition purchases, require that liability insurance be purchased before a person can buy, trade, or otherwise receive a firearm, create a national firearm registry that is linked to individual firearms and require that all purchases, transfers, and donations of firearms be mandatorily registered, prohibit individuals from purchasing more than one handgun per 30-day period, prohibit the online sale of ammunition, ban and buyback bump stocks, large-capacity magazines that are capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition, and silencers, 
prohibit individuals from hoarding ammunition in quantities exceeding 200 rounds per caliber or gauge, and prohibit states from arming teachers. End quote. Okay, so here's a clip from a YouTube video Swalwell streamed live on Monday when introducing the plan. The audio is a little choppy in the beginning, but I think you can make out what he's saying. By the way, he made this announcement at a small news conference near the NRA's headquarters in Virginia. He was joined by a bunch of gun violence survivors, families, and activists. Okay, listen in. Now, I understand some would say, well, let's just ban the future sales and manufacture of assault weapons. But that does nothing to address what could still threaten us in our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, or anywhere we may gather. And it's nothing that has not been done before. Australia, after its own mass shooting, banned and bought back assault weapons. New Zealand is moving to do that now. We don't lack the ability to do it. But for a long time, we've just lacked the courage. This is a moment to seize. At the point of sale for a firearm, first, we believe any person who purchases a firearm should have to undergo a licensing procedure. Gun ownership is a right, but it is a right that comes with responsibilities. And just like you get a permit in many places to hunt and in every state to drive, we think you need a license if you're gonna buy a firearm. We also put in place additional restrictions at the point of sale on ammunition, as well as requiring insurance. Insurance so that we can know and insurance companies can mitigate against the risk and be responsible as well if a gun ends up in dangerous hands and make sure that a family could be held and made whole, or at least in part, if a tragedy comes to them or their communities. As with all policy, I ask what this would cost and how the candidate would pay for it. Those factors are not addressed in this policy framework at all. There are various mentions of paying for things that would definitely cost something, like, you know, gun buybacks and bump stock buybacks, but there are no specifics provided about what those costs add up to. I want to tell you about another short daily news podcast that will keep you informed quickly. That's a great compliment to this show because it comes out first thing in the morning, by 4 a.m. actually. It's called The Newsworthy, and it gives you all the day's news. We're talking 8 to 12 news stories in less than 10 minutes, so you can quickly get informed as you start your day. The Newsworthy tells you the key things to know that day in politics and business, as well as the fun stuff like tech and science and entertainment. The Newsworthy keeps you informed on so many things that it's not just doom and gloom like some traditional news sources, and it's always unbiased with perspectives from a wide variety of news sources. The Newsworthy is all about being fast, fair, and fun. Oh, and guess what? On Thursdays, there are quick bonus interviews after the news that provide more about different news topics each week. So add it to your playlist and get informed first thing each weekday morning. And if you add it today, you're going to get a bonus interview in today's show. It's a Thursday show with a Bloomberg writer about the primaries. I know you're going to dig that. So search for The Newsworthy in your favorite podcast app or go to thenewsworthy.com to listen now. That's The Newsworthy, all one word. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. 
Bite Clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. On Tuesday this week, I covered the first part of Julian Castro's three-part housing plan. Now, all three parts are out, and we can look at what's in parts two and three. Okay, part two is titled, quote, Providing Fair Housing to All Americans and Aligning Housing Policy with Climate Goals, end quote. This one is mainly about extending the Fair Housing Act of 1968 to deal with discrimination and related issues around housing access. Reading from the introduction of that section here, quote, We must do more to ensure that Americans are not prevented from obtaining housing because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. We must protect against gentrification as we work to revitalize our neighborhoods. And we must do more to desegregate our neighborhoods, which will also lead to desegregation of our children's schools. However, in recent years, we've taken steps backward. Rather than working to eliminate housing discrimination, the Trump administration froze a landmark rule passed during my time at HUD to ensure all communities had the resources needed to overcome historic segregation. My People First Housing Plan calls for a redoubling of our efforts to crack down on discriminatory housing practices, to desegregate our neighborhoods, to foster inclusive communities, and to ensure our housing goals are climate conscious. End quote. Okay, so the second big section of that document has to do with climate change. Castro proposes a $200 billion green infrastructure fund, which he says would be part of a larger infrastructure plan. This fund would help pay for public transportation improvements, modernizing the electrical grid, encouraging energy efficiency upgrades for buildings, and a handful of other measures. All right, so that is part two. Part three is titled, quote, Boost Homeownership and Hold Wall Street Accountable, end quote. Reading from Castro's introduction, quote, As HUD secretary under President Obama, we worked every day to help more Americans realize their dream of homeownership and to ensure those who are struggling to pay their mortgages could stay in their homes. But we can do more. My plan would help more families get the credit they need to mortgage a home, would provide support for those who are housing insecure, would increase homeownership and rental literacy, and boost accountability, transparency, and oversight of Wall Street's housing practices to ensure more families can stay in their homes. End quote. So a bunch of this is about making FHA-backed mortgages more fair and available. Castro points out that the current FHA creditworthiness guidelines do not take into account things like rental payment history, cell phone and utility payments, and other stuff that normal people buying their first home are likely to have some history with, but are not currently considered in the decision-making process. Castro also calls for supporting, quote, reforms to the housing finance system, including Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that reinforce their mission to support housing opportunities for low and moderate income and minority communities while protecting taxpayers and the economy, end quote. So, all right, taken together, we have this gigantic three-part housing plan that is truly comprehensive. It deals with renters, it deals with home buyers, it deals with homelessness, it deals with discrimination in housing, it deals with gentrification, it even deals with climate change in some ways. 
One thing that's interesting and a little bit frustrating about Castro's plan is that he does not include the cost figures on his website as part of the plan. Instead, those are left to the campaign to provide to journalists. Well, they didn't provide them to me, and if anybody from the Castro campaign is listening, please put me on that list. Meanwhile, I can quote the LA Times, which did get that info. Now, it turns out the dollar figure from my story on Tuesday actually covers the entire plan, not just part one, which is very encouraging because the price tag is quite high. I mean, Castro is proposing to literally end all homelessness in the U.S. and create truly massive relief for renters, so you've got to expect a serious cost there. All right, reading from the LA Times, quote, All told, Castro's housing plans would cost at least $970 billion over 10 years, end quote. And how to pay for that? Quote, Castro says his housing agenda would be funded by repealing President Trump's tax cuts and closing tax loopholes, end quote. Okay, last up today, I got a great question from Catherine Henry on Twitter. She asked, quote, If one buys merchandise from a candidate's store on their website, does the money spent get counted in the candidate's money received during the quarter? End quote. Okay, this is an excellent question because it gets at how campaigns love to talk about fundraising and how they don't love to talk about spending. So let me read a Federal Election Commission rule called Proceeds from Sales, which mostly handles this merchandise question. Quote, The entire amount paid to attend a political fundraiser or other political event or to purchase a fundraising item sold by a political committee is a contribution and counts against the individual's contribution limit. For example, if a contributor pays $100 to buy a ticket to a fundraising dinner, the entire $100 is considered a contribution to the committee, even though the meal may have cost the committee $30. Similarly, if a contributor spends $20 to buy a campaign t-shirt that costs the campaign $5, the contributor has made a $20 contribution. End quote. Okay, so that deals with the contributor side, like you and me and our limits on what we can spend in giving to a certain candidate. So if I buy a $20 shirt from a campaign, yeah, the whole $20 is a contribution from me to the campaign and is part of my overall donation cap to that candidate. By the way, I have not donated any money to any candidate in this cycle, nor have I bought any shirts. But that's not what the question was, actually. The question was, quote, does the money spent get counted in the candidate's money received during the quarter? End quote. Right. Okay, so back to that. Okay, the answer to that basically is yes. The way the FEC breaks down these numbers is actually in two columns, both the income and what the campaign spends. They label these as receipts for income and disbursements for expenses. Both of these numbers are tallied up quarterly, and you end up with a running total of cash on hand after your first quarter. So, to fully answer the question, if you spend X dollars on any item for that campaign, yes, that number is part of the campaign's top-line receipts. That's the big number that they all yell about and say, look at how many millions of dollars we got. Having said that, the campaign's cost, which is what they spent in making or buying that item, is in their disbursements, and that is reported too. But you tend to hear way more coverage of the top-line income than the spending. So do keep in mind that both actually matter, and both are public records. 
So check the show notes for some handy FEC links, including the current list of presidential candidates, along with their receipts and disbursements to date. If you click around in the FEC database, you can find the itemized expenses for a given candidate. So I picked one at random. I put a link in the show notes to Andrew Yang's detailed expenses through Q1, which actually include big ticket line items for merchandise and printing and stuff like that. So thank you for the question. Keep them coming and I will keep answering them. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, folks, it is a rainy day in Portland, but that only makes the garden grow faster. In Portland, we have these green composting bins that go along with your trash and your recycling, and every week we try to fill up the green bin with clippings from the garden. So today's task, before I put out the bins for tomorrow's pickup, is I gotta fill up that green bin. And right now, that means weeding. Better to weed when the ground is wet, by the way. It's a practical tip for you. That's a kind of thoughtful, hard-to-find insight, that kind of on-the-ground yardener thinking that you tune into here because you just can't get it anywhere else. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.